Hello and welcome to another episode of the DBSA podcast series. I'm your host, Dante Freeman, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Nicole Brown as we talk about the youth mental health crisis, how COVID-19 factors in, and the unique challenges communities of color face in regards to the crisis. Dr. Nicole Brown is a pediatrician and health services researcher whose work focuses on enhancing care and service coordination for children who have experienced trauma and those with chronic mental health needs. And Dr. Brown is a member of the DBSA board. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Brown. Um, For those in our audience who are not familiar with you or your work, would you like to tell them a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Dante. Um, So as Dante said, um, my name is Dr. Nicole Brown. I'm a general pediatrician, which means I take care of children starting from newborn all the way up to the age of 21. I'm also a researcher who is very passionate about um, studying the uh, effects of poverty and other adversities on child and adolescent well-being, particularly on mental health. And Mm -hmm. so my work um, focuses on children with ADHD and how trauma impacts their lives. Um, And I am a DBSA board member. I just joined the board um, just under a year ago. Um, Again, uh, drawn to the organization because of my passion for mental health, particularly in communities of color. Thank you for that. And we're thankful to have you here at DBSA. I always forget that pediatrics can go up to the age of 21. Yes, a lot of people forget, (laughs) but we see a pretty wide range of issues, conditions. So it's, it's a great, great field to be in. Today, we're going to talk about the youth mental health crisis. Um, As some of the people in our audience may know that back in December of 2021, the U.S. Surgeon General issued an advisory on our growing youth mental health crisis. Um, And that crisis kind of was exacerbated, not kind of was exacerbated by the um, our COVID-19 pandemic. About one in five children ages three to 17 experience some form of mental or behavioral health challenges. Now, uh, Dr. Brown, before the onset of the pandemic, what types of mental health challenges were common for children and their families that you would see? And then what were some of the factors that led to those um, challenges? Sure. Um, So the most common conditions that um, I would see and generally that pediatricians see in children are internalizing disorders. So disorders like depression, like anxiety, and then externalizing disorders. So ADHD is the most common one that we see and manage, um, but other externalizing issues like conduct problems that also um, comes to our attention frequently. And, um, and I'd say that before the pandemic, we were seeing, um, you know, generally rates of depression and anxiety in kids hover um, between 12%, um, 7 to 12% for depression, particularly in uh, children of color, Mm -hmm. Um, anxiety um, uh, slightly higher. And post-pandemic, 
those numbers went up pretty dramatically as you alluded to. Yeah, so you did see an increase in um, patients um, after the pandemic hit. Absolutely, yes. So we know that some families were probably not able to seek proper care during the pandemic. Are you concerned that some families and their children are have gone undiagnosed or untreated because of the effects of the pandemic? Yes, most definitely. So access to mental health care in this country has always been a challenge. Um, right. It's just a lot of demand, even in children, that far outstrips the supply of providers. Um, there, there's also stigma, um, particularly mm -hmm. among older kids and adolescents or parents, and so um, they may not come to care as easily. Um, but post or during the pandemic, we're still in it, um, <laughs> the demand really skyrocketed. And so um, already overburdened therapists, psychiatrists mm -hmm. were sort of had to contend with this increase number of um, you know clients really needing support and care. And that created a bottleneck in the system that's already sort of been there. It, it narrowed even more. And so um, we've seen this dramatic increase in children having to go to the emergency room for care. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, and still, you know, having challenges connecting with and engaging with um, therapeutic support. During the pandemic, since um, children were largely at home, what were some of the factors that were leading to, or what are some of the factors that could lead to them dealing with mental health conditions? So I think the biggest one is social isolation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they were cut off from friends and friendships. And, you know, as you know, as, as kids age, especially in school age and adolescence, friendships and friends and being close to those people are just a huge part of their identity and their lives. And, and they're a big source of support. Um, and so when that changes, as it did dramatically with um, folks having to either quarantine, isolate, or um, with the various school-related closures and things transitioning to remote learning, you take away a big piece of the identity. Um, and kids were really, really struggling with that. So I think a lot of the social isolation led to increases in um, depression, increases mm -hmm. in generalized anxiety and other types of anxiety disorders, and um, increases you know, in certain externalizing conditions that we talked about, um, ADHD, Right. went up um, in part because remote learning was just such a major change and shift for kids um, that many just had a hard time with kind of switching to that mode and style of learning. So, so the social isolation, I think, was one of the biggest drivers, but there were other factors as well. Right. I have a colleague here who likes to remind us that um, the social learning that you do in school is just as important as the learning that you do in the classroom. Absolutely. Well said. Absolutely. 
also the you know children switching over to virtual it was hard for um, adults as well switching out myself included you know um, switching over to virtual everything so yeah I could only imagine if I was in school trying to um, deal with that or if I was a parent trying to explain to a child like all right you're doing all this on the computer that's right Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up parents because I think many parents were struggling as well. And children see that and they feel that. And, um, you know, not to put any blame on parents at all, because, you know, they're sort of allowed to feel and go through the range of emotions and changes that were brought about during the pandemic. But, you know, we as pediatricians, um, we always say we sort of sometimes we treat the parent and the child just because, you know, um, parents will often come to us and share some of their struggles and challenges. And, um, you know, when kids see their parents struggling, mm -hmm. that also puts sort of added weight on them and can exacerbate some of the conditions that we talked about. And that's that point is perfect because my next question is, uh, what do you recommend for parents who are still dealing with the fallout of the pandemic? So who are still dealing with the remote learning or, you know, lack or shortage of employment and childcare, like to address the mental health needs of their children? What, what do you recommend for them? Yeah, it's such a good question and a big question. And, you know, one of the things we're learning is the, this one word, support, support, support. <laughs> And it can come in so many different forms. It doesn't always have to be a therapist or a psychiatrist. You know, you mentioned sort of help with childcare. Um, a lot of parents don't realize that their pediatrician's office, uh, they, they see us as kind of where you go to take care of a health issue or, you know, to keep your kids well, to get vaccines and things like that. But um, many offices have relationships with um, or can pull resources from the community. So help getting your child into, if it's a younger child, preschool or daycare, you know, finding those sources of support, people who can help connect you to things that can help alleviate some of the stress um, is key. Um, and, you know, for parents really identifying who to go to if you don't have those support networks in your immediate um, family or among friends, really identifying community assets and resources that you can leverage to get the support that you need is critical. That's an excellent point. I bet you most people don't think that they can ask their pediatrician about childcare or other things, um, you probably think my kid is sick or my kid needs help and that's it. But it's yeah. a whole, you're treating the whole, even you, like you said, the whole family sometimes, right? That's a, exactly right. Exactly right. Yes. And um, even if we don't know, we'll find, we'll find out. As far as this youth mental health crisis, we were dealing with it before the pandemic. Um, we were dealing with it during the pandemic and kind of as we're coming out of it, what do you think the potential effects are on this, the generation that is, it's affecting the most? Yeah, so, you know, mental health conditions, if improperly treated, can have a range of long-term effects. Mm -hmm. Substance abuse is one, um, ac poor academic performance and potentially school dropout is another. 
Um, and then the worst of it is, is death, either by suicide or, you know, certain mental health conditions are strongly associated with a range of physical health conditions right. that if not properly taken care of can lead to early death. So, you know, it's really, really critically important that if um, children, adolescents, young adults are feeling not themselves, are just feeling either sad, anxious, um, or, you know, are having problems with attention, focus, um, the conditions we sort of talked about earlier, really speak about it to a trusted provider. Uh, it could be your pediatrician. We're often the first people to see and diagnose these conditions. Um, it could be a trusted family member or friend who can then bring it to someone who may be able to help. But you know, substance abuse, we're seeing a huge uptick in opioid use and opioid deaths um, mm -hmm. since the um, onset of the pandemic. Um, school dropout rates have gone up, rates of incarceration have increased. So it has really profound long-term effects that can last generations, as you said. Um, mm -hmm. So early identification and treatment is key. Yeah, and having that support system, like you said. Absolutely, yes. So I did a little research before I started to talk to you today, and I know that you are a pioneer um, in helping launching the Screening for Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs. Can you tell our audiences a little bit about what ACEs is and um, how that looks when they come to um, their pediatrician, or sure. how it may look? Yeah. Absolutely. So ACEs or adverse childhood experiences are traumatic events in a child's life that occur before the age of 21 that can have and that are shown to have long-term impacts on a child's development, their behavior, their, and their physical health. And um, ACEs include things like child abuse and neglect, um, family mental illness, so mental illness of a parent, uh, death of a, a caregiver. Um, there are uh, 10 ACEs that um, have been widely studied now uh, since the mid-1990s, actually. And every study has confirmed that as you go up in the number of ACEs, your risk of um, having a number of chronic diseases. So mental health conditions like depression, like anxiety, like ADHD, that risk goes up dramatically. Your risk of suicide increases. And then your risk of chronic conditions like cancer, like high blood pressure, emphysema, diabetes, that goes up significantly with the wow. number of ACEs that you've had as well. So it's a real public health crisis. And it's something that, you know, came to me as a pediatrician, just seeing kids who um, look like they have conditions like just ADHD or just depression and ju or just anxiety. And when you dig deeper, you realize that trauma is often at the root of those. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those ACEs, those adversities are usually the traumas that have been experienced 
Um, and so I became very, very interested in sort of asking the question, well, what if we identify these traumas, develop systems of care to really treat them? And, um, and then, you know, does that actually improve a child's health and their trajectory? Absolutely. Uh, again, you bring up the, the notion that mental health and physical health aren't really separate entities that, you know, that it affects your whole body, the whole That's being. Right. That's exactly right. If, if I'm a parent and I'm worried about my, I, I suspect my child is having some mental health challenges, what signs and behavior should I be looking for? Sure. That's a great question. So it, it depends in some part on age mm -hmm. and that child's kind of stage of development. You know, young children, um, may become a little bit more withdrawn or the opposite. They may have, they often have trouble expressing their feelings. You know, they don't necessarily have the language sometimes to express how they're feeling inside. So that may come out as aggressiveness, as hitting, as those conduct kind of problems that we spoke about earlier. Older kids, school-age kids, adolescents, young adults, um, you may see that withdrawing that I talked about earlier for young kids. So just losing interest in mm -hmm. the activities um, that they loved to enjoy pre previously, losing interest in sort of friends, uh, hanging out, social activities. Or you may see, um, you know, one of the manifestations of depression often and anxiety, actually, those internalizing disorders is a change in sleep. So you may lose sleep and, you know, have periods of insomnia where you're not really sleeping well, um, or you may be sleeping too much. Um, some people may even notice if you're depressed and really depressed, the change in your speech. People might observe really? that you're talking a lot more slowly than you typically do. Um, you know, your what we call your affect, just the way mm -hmm. you look is just very flat. You know, there's no, you know, I, I'm talking to you now and I'm smiling. I'm sort of raising my eyebrows and, and I'm, you know, engaging with you. In folks, particularly with depression, that, that often goes away. So there's a change in social interaction and in how people um, with depression, with anxiety and some of these disorders interact with others. Yeah, as a person who um, lives with anxiety, I know all too well about the sleep part and changes in your sleep patterns. So, <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so if I'm a parent, um, and I have to take my child in for a screening, right? A, a mental health screening. What does what does that look like typically for, or what does that process look like for them? Yeah, so in a pediatrician's office, um, usually what will happen, so we screen for lots of things in pediatrics mm -hmm. um, and mental health is, is a big one just because of how prevalent it is. And so um, oftentimes when you'll come into the doctor's office, someone, a nurse, someone sitting at the front desk may give you a tool. And in pediatrics, we use a few screening tools, one for depression, one for anxiety, 
You may get a, a generalized, what we call psychosocial screening tool. It's called the PSC-17 that asks about, asks about depression, anxiety, ADHD type symptoms. And it's a lot to sort of complete in one sitting, but it's really important because that's often the first step to identifying a need and getting families the support that they need to address that need. So the screening will often look like, here are some, some papers that we ask everyone who comes into our office to fill out. I also like to tell parents why it's important that we screen. So when we hand them a screen, there's a sheet of paper on it that explains why we're doing it. Um, right. And then once we get that screening, once it's completed, that comes to my desk and I take a look at it and I'm able to see based on how the answers were filled out, whether or not I score it. And if, if it looks like there's a concern that opens the door for a deeper conversation. You just reminded me that uh, when I was a child and would go to the doctor with my uh, father, they would always ask me if I wore my seatbelt in, in the car. And yes. my dad encouraged me to wear my seatbelt in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and I would always be like, that's the most bizarre question. I am question. Not <laughs> yes, yes. The seatbelt question still gets asked to this day. And, and it's actually a really good analogy because we ask that just because the rate of, um, injury of severe injury and death from car accidents um, is high among right. kids. And, you know, the rates of um, suicide, of, um, you know, serious consequences from an untreated mental illness, they're also very high. And right. so, so that is a good analogy because, you know, we asked the seatbelt question to make sure we try to prevent a bad injury from happening. And it's the same logic behind why we ask about mental health issues. We want to make sure we prevent those bad effects that we talked about earlier right. um, from happening. So what happens if a child, if you, if their pediatrician it does refer them to a specialist. Yeah, so a few things do happen and don't happen. Okay. And I think there, there are real issues here. Um, and it's one that um, my practice is sort of designed to address. So okay. usually what happens is, you know, you identify an issue, you'll have a conversation with the parent and that child about getting support and help. Um, and everyone sort of has to agree that help is needed, support is needed. And sometimes that doesn't happen right away. Sometimes the parent needs convincing. Oftentimes the child is reluctant to seek therapy or to seek other types of support. So it's, it's not just a one-time conversation for many families. We'll, I'll often bring them back We'll repeat the screening, we'll do, we'll have more conversation, and then, you know, they may agree. Um, and once parents consent to getting referred to a therapist or a psychiatrist or other forms of uh, mental health support, we make those referrals. And here is where the, the crisis often emerges. So 
because you know we spoke about this earlier there's so much demand mm -hmm. and you know not as much supply to keep up those referrals can sometimes sit and sit and sit until the family actually gets that phone call and says okay you know we've identified someone for you and you know um in the communities where I work, sometimes families are waiting for a month or more. Um, and yes, and it's really, you know, for me, I, I use the word unacceptable a lot because it is, you know, we see these mental health, mental illness as like any other illness. You know, if I diagnosed a child with diabetes, it would not be acceptable for that child to wait more than a month to be seen by a specialist who can immediately treat that diabetes. And it's right. the same with depression, anxiety, or any other mental health condition. Um, so, you know, we've designed in my practice, we've been intentional about really forging these very strong partnerships with community mental health clinics with other community organizations and agencies so that once we refer a patient, it's a speedy, um, there's a workflow in place that makes that um, process go a lot faster and helps the family engage in care quicker. As we continue to have this conversation, we know that the language we use to talk about mental health conditions and challenges is vital to ending stigma and bringing understanding to the mental health crisis. Um, as mental health becomes more common, um, how the topic of mental health becomes more common, how should families talk about mental health with their children? So I uh, you always sort of use some of the analogies you've brought up. So. It's like any other illness, you know, it's like sort of, uh, you know, I talked about diabetes. I'll, I'll often bring up high blood pressure because these are conditions kids have heard about and generally know. Um, and I talk about the consequences of not treating these kinds of illnesses. And I say, it's the same thing with a mental health disorder. If they go untreated, these are the potential consequences, and we have the resources and the supports in place to treat them, to prevent these consequences from happening. So I really encourage parents to use that language if they can, draw the analogies with other illnesses that kids may be familiar with, especially if the kids are older, and um, say that, you know, we, I will take you, I would take you to the doctor to get those illnesses treated. This is the same thing. In your um, opinion, what role does trauma-informed care play in tackling this youth, youth mental health crisis? It's huge, it's huge. You know, as I, I mentioned a little bit before, trauma often lies at the root of many of these conditions. And, um, you know, trauma looks, a lot like um, ADHD. Um, it looks a lot like symptoms of anxiety and depression. There's a lot of overlap between the symptoms of traumatic stress and the, the symptoms of these conditions that we more commonly diagnose. 
but we often don't screen for trauma. And so because we don't, it's really important as, you know, a care provider to treat everyone, not to treat everyone as though they may have trauma, but to be aware that, you know, the way you speak to a patient, even when you're going to do your physical exam and you're placing your stethoscope on their chest or you're feeling their belly, I always tell patients what I'm about to do before I do it, because you just don't know. You know, it may have been a child who was sexually abused or abused in some other way. And coming to the doctor can be triggering. It's already stressful to go into a doctor's office. And so so trauma-informed care means really keeping that in mind, that trauma is very common in our country. Um, and you approach your patients, your clients um, with through that lens that this could be someone who's experienced something traumatic, you know, explain what you're going to do before you do it, treat them with compassion, with empathy, let them feel like you're listening and you're mm-hmm. not just sort of the one kind of talking and driving the conversation. Um, so that that to me is is what trauma informed care looks like in pediatric practice and medical practice. As our country continues to have this conversation about um, youth and mental health, the fact that underrepresented communities can be impacted differently can't be ignored. Um, hospitalizations and suicide attempts are on the rise, especially for Black youth. Um, what can organizations like ours, like DBSA? Um, do to address this? I think outreach is key. So really, um, and outreach and awareness, you know, really being intentional about reaching those communities, kind of meeting people where they are. So it could be, you know, church community, it could um, be some of the trusted community organizations that I spoke about earlier. really sort of meeting folks where they are and then educating them um, in, you know, and I, I gave a few examples of what I do to educate families about why identifying mental health is important, why treating it is important. Um, but I think really sort of embedding DBSA's kind of mission tenets into these communities, meeting folks where they are, and then sort of educating them in in a way that, you know, they'll understand and um, yeah, that that destigmatizes kind of mental health by putting it in the same light as physical health problems. Some communities are aware that children can be misdiagnosed. Um, It's commonplace in the Black community that sometimes little Black boys get diagnosed with ADHD um, because they've acted out in class or um, they're doing um, behavior that is disruptive. But we also know that they can be misdiagnosed because of a lack of cultural competence among teachers, providers, and other adults in their lives, right? What can parents do if they feel like their child has been misdiagnosed and they aren't getting the help, the actual help that they need? 
I think parents should always be transparent about how they're feeling. So if they feel like there is implicit bias or their child is being treated unfairly, you know, they should approach whoever, it, it may be in school, it could be the school principal, it may be in a healthcare setting, it could be their provider. These are very uncomfortable conversations to have. So, you know, it's easy to talk about it, but harder to do. But, but it always starts with transparent conversation. And you're absolutely right that, you know, um, black and brown children um, are often, uh, you know, whether it's because of implicit bias, discrimination, um, they're often sort of seen differently mm -hmm. than, um, than their counterparts. And they feel that, you know, there's, there's this term that we're hearing a lot called microaggressions. And People internalize that. You know, I myself have experienced it as a Black woman in healthcare. There's not many of us. And that is a trauma. You know, it's a, it's a stressor. And all traumatic stress sort of acts similarly in the body. It builds up. It causes some of the bad health and mental health outcomes we talked about earlier. So if a parent sees that that may be happening, you've got to identify it, talk about it, because what you don't want to happen is having that child internalize that, internalize that feeling different, being singled out, being treated differently, potentially because of the color of his or her skin or upbringing or family circumstances, because that then once they internalize it, once it builds up, it leads to the depression, the anxiety, the physical health problems that we talked about earlier. Yeah, those microaggressions that you just have to deal with on a daily basis, you don't realize how much those add up just for you to imagine a child in that Absolutely, same. absolutely. And children's brains are still so plastic, they're still growing. And when there are insults to it, they have a profound effect, um, you know, and as they get older, those changes become less reversible. So it's really important for parents to speak up when they feel like something unfair is happening. As we continue, what are some things parents can do to model good mental health for their children? So the great question. Um, so, you know, I think that kids really respond well to positive reinforcement. So, you know, your child, for example, the child with ADHD, um, they may be used to the parent or a teacher or whatever, constantly pointing out that they're doing something wrong. But when you actually see that child sitting, focusing, doing something well, say it. Look, Johnny, you're doing such a great job just focusing on your schoolwork or sitting and listening. Great job. I'm really proud of you. That kind of positive reinforcement goes a long way, um, particularly for younger kids, but for older adolescents as well. So that's a, an important modeling technique that I'll talk to parents about. 
if parents themselves are, you know, needing that support and are feeling like they, um, they're just, you know, not able to be their best in terms of parenting. The first thing is that it's okay. Like it's okay. They need to understand that it's okay to not always be sort of that perfect parent and their best at all times. Um, and they, they also need to, I think good modeling is recognizing when you need support yourself and then seeking that support. Absolutely. We know, we preach here at DBSA that wellness is a journey and everybody is on a different part of their journey. That's right. um, so it makes sense that someone acknowledging that, hey, I, I need some support right now would then translate down to um, their child as well. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Brown. Oh, it's my pleasure. This was such a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the DBSA podcast series. Remember to rate and review the series on your favorite podcast app. If you want to support more shows like this one, you can make a gift today by going to dbsalliance.org slash donate. Thank you. <laughs>